We've been studying the prophecy of Isaiah for a number of weeks, and we'll go on until the end of the year doing so, covering chapters 40 to uh, 55, and we've got to chapter 51, chapter 52 today. I'm going to read uh, from chapter 52, verse 7, just to get us a flavor of, uh, of this morning's passage. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. The Lord will go before you the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So at the beginning of October, in the year 1520, that a young man published a small book entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. His name was Martin Luther. Luther was uh, the father of the Reformation, the um, great movement which gave birth to the modern Protestant church. And uh, Luther's argument in that little book was that the church of his day was held captive just as securely as the ancient Israelites had been held captive in exile by the nation of Babylon. The church's captivity, he said, was actually to the priests of his day and the whole power structure of which they were a part. According to Catholic doctrine, priests alone could pronounce forgiveness. They alone could bestow salvation through baptism. They, they alone could mediate the presence of Christ to the people by uh, the Mass. And Luther called the people to set themselves free of that. He called them to enjoy the salvation a salvation and a personal faith in Jesus Christ, unmediated by anyone else. He actually derided the idea that um, priests themselves were particularly spiritual people at all. He said uh, uh, being a monk or a priest actually was not a particularly special calling. He said Christians can worship any God anywhere not just when they go up to church and are ministered to by this uh, man. He actually said in another work that God and the angels laugh with delight when they see a Christian man changing a baby's nappy. Much more, he said, than they ever laugh if they see a fasting or praying monk who has no faith. So Luther actually set uh, in place the pieces for quite an explosive change in the church, which has actually left its mark on, uh, on, Europe, on the whole of European civilization since. Because Christian faith broke free 
from the controlled, institutionalized bonds in which it was bound, and people were allowed to worship God with their whole lives, glorifying God without the need of a priesthood to mediate him. Now, I was reminded of that little book by Luther this week as I was studying Isaiah 51 and 52, because, of course, this passage, the whole of Isaiah 40 to 55, is addressed to the people of God in captivity in Babylon. And chapters 51 and 52 are a call to the people of God based on all that Isaiah has said up to now, to break free from their bondage. I was reminded that Martin Luther pointed out that the church still can find itself in just such a secure bondage today. And I asked myself this question. What is it today that threatens to imprison the modern church? What is the danger of, what is our Babylonian captivity? I want to suggest to you two answers, the beginnings of uh, two answers this morning, two dimensions of the prison, I think, that the church could very easily be locked into. The first is, that there is enormous pressure for Christians to privatize their faith. A number of trends have combined together to force actually all faiths, not just Christianity, to accept that religious opinions are just uh, private opinions. They're never public truths. In the Western world, there are enormous pressures to force religion behind closed doors. You know, it's they want, people want to take it out of politics. They want to take it out of the workplace. They want to take it out of the, the market square. They want to lock it behind the solid doors of the church and the home. Uh, let me just give, give you an example of, of that. Church buildings. A hundred years or more ago, church buildings were a major center of the community. They were actually a public place. Even a church like this would have been regularly visited by a significant proportion of the population. Many people, even those who were not regular worshippers, would have said, actually, this church is ours. There are just a very few elderly, non-church-going people in this community who would still say, this church is our church. But they are a dying race. And today it's generally agreed by society that a church is a private place where Christians go to perform their private devotions. There's no way this building, or actually even the Anglican church on the Cowley Road, is really seen by the local community as ours. Because religion just doesn't have that place in society any longer. Or... Um, to take another, another aspect of this, of, that, of how, in fact, Christians are, are, have been forced uh, or are in, ten, are in danger of being forced into making their faith just their own private opinion. We actually spend very little of our time these days living in 
truly mixed communities, or at least sharing our hearts in those mixed communities. Rural communities still do that. They're thoroughly mixed. But a city like this one actually uh, forces people or encourages people just to live in a little community of people who share their own personal beliefs. You know, we sally forth to do our jobs, but all our relationships at work now are short-term and superficial. Or we shop in anonymous supermarkets where the very thought of having a five-minute chat with the cashier is laughable, isn't it? Get the manager out telling you to move on. Cannot have relationships, actually, in the, in, in, the, in the wider world. And people of all faiths actually retreat into uh, a group who share their basic fundamental beliefs for their real relationships. You've, you'll find uh, uh, New Agers in, in East Oxford have very few relationships with non-New Age people. You find Muslims in East Oxford have very few relationships with non-Muslim people. And sadly, too, Christians have very few relationships with non-Christians. That was not the case a while ago. The pressure on society for Christians and all people of faith to accept that their faith is just their private opinion within their own little group. Now, we can't change, change, turn the clock back. The world has changed. We live in a pluralist society. We are not likely to return to a time when the church is... is is the focus of faith in a community. But we cannot afford to lose the concept that Christianity is a public faith. It speaks not just of what goes on in our hearts, it speaks of what goes on in the world. You couldn't have read Isaiah 40 and uh, following and have escaped that, could you? I mean, God has, is portrayed as ruling over all of the nations, whether they acknowledge or not, ruling their histories, ruling their kings for the sake of his people. Most especially uh, uh, in Isaiah, God's going to deliver his people from captivity in ba Babylon. One nation will overthrow another nation because God's decided that it should be so. It is a public faith, Christianity. a terrible denial of those truths then if the church withdraws into its little ghetto if church life becomes in fact um, a, uh, a retreat onto a pleasure cruiser for uh, private <coughs> refreshment and relaxation rather than a, uh, a troop carrier for delivering the troops out into the world to share their faith if in our own personal lives we accept that our faith is only a matter of our personal opinion, and if we accept that our real heart engagement with others can never be with people who are anything but uh, Christians who share our beliefs, just as in Luther's day, you see, where, where uh, uh, ordinary Christians were controlled and trapped by the world that they lived in, in their expression of their faith, there is a danger, I think, that, that uh, Christians as well could have a truncated, narrow view of their faith rather than a big view of what God has called us to. 
Second dimension, that's the first dimension. We, we, we are forced to privatize our faith. Second thing that I want to, to point out to you, which is, I think, almost more damaging to us. Christian faith has become much more, much more about what God does for us now than what God will do for us in eternity. We live in a now culture. I mentioned in the, in the newspaper, what has consumerism done for the church? I think it will say that. It will say, in fact, that the church is encouraged to see itself as just another dispenser of an instant product. The world can understand that. You know, the most extreme example of that is the, is the, uh, what the pundits call health and wealth movement, the idea that God's blessing must, me, must mean we'll have lots of money and no disease. But in its milder forms, we find people are far more interested in their present experience than their, per, than their eternal status. And that's actually a very terrible prison for Christians to find themselves in, because it, it becomes introspective. We spend far too much time agonizing over our personal circumstances rather than delighting in our eternal destiny. We actually become very insecure because every problem, every difficulty comes to us as a sign that God's not blessing us in our lives. And we actually become self-indulgent too. God must bless me now. I must not wait. Christianity becomes a faith which has very little power because it does not take account of the future. Christian ministers become salespeople, waffling about how God can give better blessings than the competitor down the road, rather than prophets who are proclaiming eternal truths. I think there are very real captivities that we as a church could be forced into we could have a perspective which is far too narrow, seeing our Christian faith as something that just happens in our hearts rather than a big public faith. And we could have a perspective which is far too short, thinking only in terms of what can happen now rather than in terms of the main lesson that the New Testament teaches us is what will happen for us in eternity. Now, that's a long introduction to, to, to this because I wanted to, to try at least to establish um, that uh, the Babylonian captivity that we are going to be uh, reading about and thinking about this morning is a very real one. We don't live under a hostile power like Babylon, but we live under equally powerful forces that would like to keep us trapped. And 51 to 52, I've just given you a brief outline there on the, on the overhead. You should have it on a, an insert as well. Sets out how Isaiah is going to address us this morning. It begins by issuing an urgent call. Then there are three cries. Awake! A cry of despair, a cry of reproach, a cry of exhortation. And then finally there is a glad proclamation as we've had to do every time, we will go through it quite rapidly. But always have in mind, this is not just about liberating the people from Babylon. This is about setting all people of faith free. First then, Isaiah sets the scene with this urgent call. 
uh, 52 verse, uh, sorry, 51 verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. I blessed him and made him many. Abraham and Sarah were an elderly couple who were past childbearing age, and God said to them, you will have a child, and he will be the ancestor of countless believers from every nation, and Sarah's response was to laugh. Now she was resigned, you see, in her own life, to dying quietly with her little private faith, and no real hope for the future, and no thought for the wider world a narrow, a short perspective on the world. And God had other ideas for her. She uh, gave birth to a son, Isaac, and Isaac was the ancestor of all of Israel, and ultimately Israel was going to be a blessing to all nations through Jesus Christ. And that plan began with one elderly couple for whom it would be a miracle if they had a single child. God says, you've seen it once. Now, he says, I'm going to tell you about it again. Uh, this time, about your captivity in Babylon. The Lord, verse uh, 3, will surely comfort Zion, will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of singing. In other words, he's saying, you think you're in just such a hopeless situation, but I'm going to do something different now. Think you might say that to the church? Or again, Isaiah says, Israel of old had been taught to live uh, with the law, to live according to God's law. And she was specifically told that she was going to be a model for all nations. But now, irony of ironies, they lived under foreign laws, and what Israelite laws uh, uh, they did kept were kept, again, as a matter of private tradition, in their own homes, in the midst of a hostile force. And God wasn't happy with that. Verse 4, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation, the Lord will go out, the law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. God was determined to have his justice practiced not just privately, but throughout the world. Implicit in Isaiah's call, though, is a perspective that goes far, far beyond their liberation from Babylon. Isaiah always seems to, seems to uh, see the liberation from Babylon and then suddenly see a mountain beyond, a much greater deliverance. See what he says in verse 6. Lift your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die like flies. My salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. 
Isaiah was looking, was proclaiming God's unstoppable intention to fulfill his purpose for the whole world. And that perspective was eternal. It would not see its final fulfillment until the end of time when Jesus comes again and heaven is established. He says, I've told you about that now. Why do you feel so overwhelmed by the forces of Babylon who you face? Verse 7. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. He's saying, break free. Break free, you Israelites who feel dominated by Babylon. Break free, you Christians who feel dominated by a world that wants to, wants to, 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 to hem you in on every side. God is working out his purposes in all eternity. God will bring about his justice. God will bring you to a, to a, a moment of joy inexpressible in heaven. He says, if you can see that, why do you feel do so dominated by the present world? But he knew we are dominated. And he begins to address that. He, he addresses that by three cries of awake, awake. You see them in verse 9. Then uh, verse 17 of chapter 51, and then in verse 1 of chapter 52. The first, awake, awake, though, is different from the latter two, because the first one is on the lips of Israel, and it's a cry of despair. Verse uh, 9, awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? In other words, he's saying, we know our history, God. We know you did great things in the past, but you seem to have gone to sleep. Perhaps you've been worn out by delivering our ancestors from Egypt, Rahab as we call her. Perhaps killing that great monster, Pharaoh, was all too much for you. Perhaps parting the Red Sea meant she had to go and have a nap for a couple of thousand years. Wake up, God! Isn't that what Christians say so often? We know you've done things in the past, God, but you seem to be dozing right now. Can't you wake up? Well, God says, don't you worry. I am awake. I am going to bring you eternal joy, verse 11. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Why then do you fear what is only here for a moment, he says? 
Verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men? The sun but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? You know, I think it is perhaps fear. Perhaps fear that keeps Christians most profoundly in their own prisons. Fear of opposition, fear of ridicule, fear of shame, fear that actually God really is asleep. Isaiah says that that an assurance about God's sovereignty over this world and a certainty about his final victory, a broad perspective and a long perspective, will, will totally wipe away our fear. It's that assurance, you know, that enabled the British martyrs, Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley, to keep going. They were all burned in this city in 1555. You can see the cross which marks the place. And they went to their deaths boldly. As the fires were lit on Broad Street in Oxford, Latimer cried out to uh, Ridley, who was an academic, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And they did. They didn't think God was awake, was asleep, was having a snooze. They trusted, actually, that even their deaths would work out God's eternal purposes. And they were absolutely free. That's what Isaiah is calling us to. He's calling us to an understanding and a faith that God is awake. That God does control the world. That God is eternally in control. Because it will set us free to face the future, whatever the cost. There are just two or three people here really caught hold of that message. What a difference it would make. But God then turns the tables on them. Israel has said, awake, awake, O God, and uh, he has answered them. But God then says, awake, awake. He says, awake, because of your experience of suffering. Verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you have drained, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Israel had experienced suffering as a judgment on the nation. Now it's very important that we understand for this section that not all suffering is a direct result of a particular sin. The, the Bible's quite clear about that. The book of Job makes the point very clearly. Job suffered despite his righteousness. 
Actually, even in Israel, it would be naive to think that everyone who was suffering in the exile was suffering for their personal sins. If you look at this, this section in Isaiah, Isaiah's speaking to people whom he recognizes are basically righteous. Suffering is a very blunt instrument, in a sense. But uh, there is a connection between the general fallenness of this world, the general damaged nature of this world, caused by mankind's sin and suffering. And Isaiah says, shouldn't that wake you up to that sense of need for some resolution to this? what he says. Verse 21. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk over you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. Now, of course, up to a point that was fulfilled when Babylon was overthrown, when Babylon suffered, and when subsequently Israel was released, but not fully. No... Uh, uh, they couldn't say when they were liberated from Babylon that no one would ever drink again from that cup of suffering. Now this looks towards eternity. This looks towards the final great resolution of all of history when there is no more tears. When God is united with his people in heaven. And says Isaiah, you've experienced suffering. You've sensed suffering. Doesn't it make you want to wake up and long for that promise? Now, as C.S. Lewis described suffering as, as God's megaphone to a deaf world. When there is suffering in this world, part of what is happening is God is shouting at us, can't you see how wrong the world is? Can't you see how much you need to put your faith in me? Can't you see how much you need heaven? Wake up, says Isaiah. And those eternal realities. Get yourself a long perspective. And live with that. And then uh, God says again, wake up. But this time, wake up because of my promise of deliverance in chapter 52. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. 
you were sold for nothing without money, you will be redeemed. You will be delivered, he's saying. So he says, live like it now. Shake the dust off, off, off you. Take the chains off your neck. Live like the free people you most certainly will be. Do you really think, he says, that Babylon is so powerful? Verse 4, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here? declares the Lord. Actually, a beautiful little picture if you think about it. He's saying, you may have seen your national captivity in Egypt all those uh, centuries ago as a great uh, oppression which endangered your very existence. It was a terrible captivity. I saw it just as you living there for a while. He says, a few generations ago, you may have seen Assyria, the great superpower of the recent past, as a great threat. But he says that was just a little counter-melody in the great orchestral symphony, which is my history. He says, and now you're living under another superpower that thinks it's the boss. This time it's Babylon. Now, what do we have here? He says, I'll leave you to guess what I'm going to do to them. I'll just tell you the end result. Verse 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Wake up, he says. I'm awake. I've never been asleep. Doesn't your experience of suffering make you long for a long perspective, a perspective of an eternity when God has absolutely promised that all suffering will be at an end? Doesn't the experience of what God, how God controls the whole of history and his promises to you now give you a wide perspective that says, this faith is not just about a few people hiding behind closed doors or concealing the truth in their hearts. This faith is a description of the whole world. Then, from establishing that, he moves on to give us a glad proclamation at the end to summarise it. This is what I've shown you, he says. This is what I've told you to do. Wake up. Now, he says, enjoy what I am going to describe for you. Pictures news of uh, the liberation coming to the city of Jerusalem. And first of all, he says, a herald appears on the hilltops, on the mountains, proclaiming the great news. Verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Then he says, after that proclamation on the mountaintops, the watchmen on the hills of the city respond as God himself comes marching home to be with his people. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion, 
They will see it with their own eyes. And then he says, the city itself, the bricks and mortar will start singing. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And then uh, uh, finally, he says, as God comes home to his people, actually it'll be a message that the whole universe sees. Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, he says, now I've woken you up. Now that I've proclaimed, I've described this great liberation, he says, now leave your captivity and God will go with you. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. You will not leave in haste or go in flight. The Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. God had liberated the people from Egypt, you see, and uh, they had had to leave in great haste but he says, not this liberation. Now this liberation is not going to be by the skin of your teeth. This liberation you won't have to hurry. You will not leave in haste or go in flight because God is absolutely determined to achieve it. And again, though that was partially fulfilled when they were liberated from Babylon. It awaits its final fulfillment when the people of God are liberated in heaven. And he says, with that in view, live like it. That's what he's saying. I wonder what that means for you. I wonder what that means for this church. I think it must mean, mustn't it, for each one of us here that we have a duty if we really are believers to live out our faith in that wider realm, that public realm. Not just to live out privatised faith. And it must mean as well but we seek to be motivated primarily to find our joy primarily in our eternal destiny, not just the things that come along every so often and trouble us or make us rejoice for a little while. I think that's a great challenge to us. I think that's a challenge to the church here because uh, there is no doubt in my mind that... Uh, uh, this building where we meet is seen as a private place, a shut-off place. Not a place that is at the heart of the community. Whatever we do as a church, if we are to live out a public faith, it must be in a public context. I think it must mean for us as Christians as well, we must have confidence to have 
real relationships with those people who do not share our faith as yet. It is a terrible capitulation to just say, uh, I will mix with people whom I already believe with, believe the same things as. There's a real irony about that, actually. A lot of churches, um, uh, historically, at least from the free church tradition, have made much of uh, this phrase, uh, depart, depart, come out from it and be pure. Churches tend to interpret, interpret that very often as, uh, as uh, needing to have a very tight church membership and a very tight church life which maintains the purity of the gospel. But actually, those churches that have sought to be untainted in that way have been totally compromised in exactly the way that the world as a whole would like us to be, by privatizing our faith into a, into a little private ghetto. <coughs> the paradoxical thing is that the call to us today is in fact to break free of that captivity, to live lives out in the public realm. That is true Christian purity. I don't, I don't know what that means for you uh, as an individual. But I do know that as we seek to be motivated more profoundly by our eternal destiny, we will find a strength flowing into our Christian lives which we couldn't imagine. And as we seek to live lives which, which, which model that breadth of scope that God so clearly has in his mind, of his concern for the world and his control for the, over the world and his purposes for the world, we will find we're living, living in, in the bright, fresh air of a life really lived after God's heart. Awake, awake, says God. Wake up to how big I really am. And your life will be changed. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who live as you call us to live. Not as captives, but as free. Not as focused just on the here and now, but as focused on the freedom of eternity. Not as focused just on the, our little circumscribed world, but on the large world that surrounds us. And as we live lives like that, we pray, Lord, give us joy. In Christ's name, amen.